You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome. Welcome, everyone. It's Monday. It's Monday afternoon. That means it's time for Fire It Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week. And as always, we're going to get into the politics and the mechanics of what's going on here in the United States. We're going to do things a little bit different this week. Originally, I intended to devote most of this show, if not all of it, to a discussion of uh, some of the new events uh, surrounding the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic here in the country. But uh, as usual, there were a couple of stories that popped up on my radar that just I I had to cover. So we're going to cover these um, right after we do the COVID numbers. And then we're going to come back and go in-depth on some of the new things happening with COVID-19 here in this country. So I hope everyone had a good, safe weekend. Uh, Maybe you got a little barbecuing in, as we did, and uh, everything uh, is going good, and you've started your work week, and uh, things are looking well. Uh, Let's get into our COVID numbers, and uh, we'll kick that off, as always. Uh, We currently sit at 33.85 million cases here in the U.S. Uh, 607,000 people have died from the disease. And on the vaccination front, uh, there have been a total of 332.6 million uh, vaccines administered. 48% uh, of the U.S. population has received uh, or or is fully vaccinated. And 56% of the population has received at least one dose. But as I said, There were a couple of stories that uh, popped up on the radar that really, really caught my attention. And I want to get through those so that I make sure that I can can actually get them covered and don't run out of time or, you know, have to to cut short what I want to say about them. And the first one came uh, out of Illinois on July 9th. And uh, the Illinois governor signed a law making Illinois the first state in the nation to require public schools to teach Asian American history. So, you know, this this article came out of the Chicago Sun-Times, and it was written by Rachel Hinton. Uh, You can go to their website and see the link if you want to read it for yourself. The article itself is a a pretty quick read. It's uh, not all that long. So let me read it for you. And again, this came out on the 9th of July from Chicago Sun-Times. Asian American history will soon be woven into public school studies across Illinois under a bill signed into law by Governor J.B. Pritzker on Friday. A move the governor said sets a new standard for what it means to truly reckon with our history. And he's quoted as saying, Today we are reaffirming our commitment to creating more inclusive school environments. We are making Illinois the first state in the nation to require that Asian American history will be taught in public schools, Pritzker said at Niles West High School. It's a new standard that helps us understand one another and ultimately to move ourselves closer to the nation of our ideas. The new law will require Illinois' public elementary and high schools to teach students about Asian American history starting in 2022 
After a spike in violence against Asian Americans and the killing of six Asian American women in Atlanta back in March, the lessons include the history of the Chinese Exclusion Acts, the internment of Japanese Americans, the military service of Asian Americans throughout American history, the history of Asian Americans in Illinois and the Midwest, and Asian American contributions toward advancing civil rights from the 19th century onward. In April, State Representative Jennifer Gong Gershowitz said on the floor of the House that she introduced the bill because Asian Americans, quote, are part of the American fabric, but we are often invisible, close quote. She continued to say how, quote, we have been the victims of racialized violence and exclusion throughout American history, she said, then adding her grandparents faced uh, discrimination and deportation under racist policies codified in the Chinese Exclusion Acts, but she was taught nothing about that in elementary or secondary school. At the bill signing Friday, Glenview, the Glenview Democrat said learning about her family's history and the larger history of Asian Americans in the U.S. was a pivotal moment in her life. The new law will ensure, quote, the next generation of Asian American students won't need to travel across the country or attend law school to learn something about their heritage. And she quotes, uh, empathy comes from understanding and we cannot do better unless we know better, close quote, she said. But when Asian American history isn't taught, it leaves a gap that can lead non-Asian people to believe in stereotypes and act toward Asian Americans based on those stereotypes. A lack of knowledge is the root cause of discrimination and the best weapon against ignorance is education. And again, that was quoting Representative Jennifer Gong Gershowitz, uh, a Illinois uh, state representative. So the reason I said this caught my interest is as we've been talking about on this show, uh, at least going back, you know, probably six or seven shows, um, you know, uh, a couple of months, there's been a heated debate going on in this country about critical race theory, which is a, a uh, set of guidance and guideline instructions for educating uh, students about the racial history of the United States of America. And, you know, this has been a very controversial subject. Uh, it has been the subject of heated debates, both in the, the public, uh, in the media, and in the legislative houses from the state level all the way up to the federal level. Uh, this, this piques my interest because when I, when I first found this article, uh, as always, and, and you know, as I say, dig wider, dig deeper, I went into my news feeds, I went into uh, the search engines I used, I went into you know, the resources I have at hand to try and find out if this bill uh, passed in Illinois had been in any way protested against. And uh, frankly, I did not find any news reporting that there was any kind of protest that was made about this bill, which uh, talks uh, in very frank terms about a racist segment of American history. 
And it, it occurs to me that, you know, the, the arguments that opponents of critical race theory uh, should have found this uh, a similar subject uh, to which they, they should have addressed their, their protests and their anger uh, and their, their wish not to see it move forward. Yet, uh, this bill seems to have sailed through the Illinois State House. Um, it was first introduced, I believe, in December of uh, last year and has received, you know, no you know, noticeable press other than the signing. Uh, it has not been the subject of any uh, widespread uh, protests in the state of Illinois, at least none that has been reported in you know any of the the media outlets that I've seen, and even a few specific to Illinois and Chicago that I went to to look and see if it was only being covered at the local level. So here's my problem, and 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 let me let me preface this very clearly by saying I applaud Governor Pritzker for signing this bill into law. I think it is a good thing that, you know, this education regarding the contributions of Asian Americans to the history of this country is a a 100% positive thing and and I am, you know, fully in support of this effort to teach this valuable information. However, I can't help but draw the parallel, con- the, the parallel comparisons to the response that has been given with the critical race theory argument and, you know, you know by extension and inclusion, the 1619 Project and other efforts that have been put forward to do the exact same thing with African-American history in this country uh, and yet has received, you know, nothing but pushback and argument uh, and and protest uh, that this is not something that you know America wants in its schools they don't want their schools talking uh, teaching about uh, the history of African Americans in this country they don't want a frank and honest conversation about the history of racism in this country with regard to African Americans but for Asian Americans this is a conversation we can have in Illinois, at least. So, you know, uh, uh, again, I'm I'm fully in favor of broadening the educational spectrum to include this vital part of American history. I applaud uh, the state representatives and I applaud the governor who signed the bill into law. I I can't let it go uncontested uh, with regard to the reaction a similar approach has received when it comes to um, African-American discussion uh, and American history in this country. Uh, it, to me, it seems like, you know, the distinction is very clear and, you know, the, the state of Illinois, you know, accepted uh, the, the hypocrisy that is being shown by, you know, this so-called embracing or this actual embracing of this law uh, and the opposition that similar efforts with regard to African-American history seems to have drawn. 
Now, it remains to be seen, this, this, uh, this news is only a week old, it remains to be seen if there's going to be some pushback that occurs, you know, sometime between now and the start of school in, in 2022, uh, when this curriculum begins to surface into the, the regularly scheduled teaching uh, in Illinois public schools. So we will, we will keep an eye out for this. We will let you know what happens and if any news comes about. But as I said, I, I just could not let this story not get covered uh, on this show um, you know, for, for all of the obvious reasons. Now, moving, moving on, a second uh, story that came across my news feeds, uh, and this one uh, came from um, the Chris Cuomo show on uh, the POTUS channel on Sirius XM. Uh, as I was scanning through the news, uh, uh, cable news and, and all of that, um, I heard as, as part of a discussion that Chris Cuomo was having, where he suggested that a solution to the, the uh, uh, voter suppression and voter uh, discrimination that has been going on that we've been talking about on this show for more than a year, um, he put forward a, an interesting uh, approach to how we could address this issue. Uh, and it got me to thinking about it in some different terms. So uh, what Cuomo was saying on his show, and um, this was uh, last Tuesday, that why don't we have voter ID registration uh, in real time at the polling places where you go to vote? If you don't have proper identification, we could have a kiosk set up or some method of getting uh, you know, instantaneous verification of your residency to get you a, a, an approved voter ID that you could then use to go vote. Um, and it was one of those aha moments because, uh, like I said, I have, you know, went back and did some digging and I had not seen this idea brought forward in, in any other discussion uh, that I could find, um, you know, in, in my news sources, uh, going back, you know, more than, you know, two or three years. So, you know, an interesting idea. Now, I will, I will extend this, um, you know, to say usually on this show, you know, we talk about calls to action. Well, in, with this particular issue, um, it's more than a call to action I'm going to make. I'm going to actually give you a suggestion as to the action you can take. And that is quite simply to reach out to your state uh, and local elected officials, particularly your election boards, um, sign petitions, get you know, signatures in support, show up outside of your uh, state representative's office, engage their, their email, their, their social media, their, their phone lines, and you know, put this idea in front of them saying, look, uh, whether or not you want to you know, set some guidelines as to how voting can happen, uh, really what should happen is that there should be a mechanism whereby people 
who don't have a, a recognized voter ID can obtain one at the polling place where they're going to vote. Uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things like the fact that there are post office mailboxes outside of the post office. You know, why not have that capability? So, you know, just another something, and, and again, our call to action is let's get started with uh, getting together, you know, gathering, you know, our groups of people, gathering our social circles, and, you know, making those phone calls, reaching out to your neighbors, uh, reaching out to those in your family who may not have a, a, a valid voter ID. Uh, let's, let's get that underway. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, you know, is you know, there, there's a lot of action going on with uh, disenfranchisement and voter suppression. But, you know, the, the one of the solutions or one of the other solutions is really pretty straightforward. So again, not, not just a call to action, but an action you can take. The, uh, the, the midterm election doesn't occur until November of 2022. That's, as of the recording of this show, uh, roughly about f uh, 16 months or 15 months uh, from now. That should be plenty of time for those of you who uh, aren't registered to vote to do the, the steps you need to get registered to vote. Uh, even if you are you know, distant from the, the place in your county where you can, can register to vote, uh, you have you know, more than a year, you have 14, 15 months, more than enough time to get out, get into uh, that place where you can register to vote and get yourself registered. Uh, we hear a lot of uh, moaning and groaning and crying and complaining and arguing and cussing and yelling and all of that, uh, particularly from the, the liberal side, the democratic side, and the independent side of the, the voting spectrum uh, about you know, what the, the Republicans are doing and what uh, you know, draconian changes they're making to the voting uh, laws uh, in order to restrict certain groups from exercising their right to vote uh, in substantial numbers. We've talked about this on this show. You've heard it on, on any news source that you've listened to. This has been the subject of conversation for, you know, 10 years. But again, and I state and I stress, there is more than enough time for anyone who is not registered to vote uh, and, and is looking at the midterm election in, in 2022. There is more than enough time. There's over a year to get yourself registered. Write a note, stick it on the dashboard of your car, you know, stick it on the note board in your kitchen, whatever, so that you see it every day. And when your journey takes you near to where voter registration happens, make that plan to take the, the ID information that you have that you need in order to get registered and in order to get your, your right to vote secured. Now, if you need to find out what information you need, there are websites out there that can tell you that. Uh, one is vote.org. Uh, where you can go, enter in your location, 
and it will tell you what the requirements are for uh, being registered to vote in your area. Same thing with another site called Ballotpedia.com. And I've posted links to these on my Facebook page before. I will repost them uh, on the Facebook page for the show uh, this week so that they will be available. Uh, if you're still not sure, send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com and I will hunt down for you uh, what your polling, what your voting uh, registration uh, location is and uh, what information you'll need. I will reference the, the appropriate page from your state's um, Board of Elections and make sure that you get that information. Um, you know, it, it is up to all of us to make sure that we get you know, as many people registered to vote as possible. And you know, obviously, if you're a Democratic voter, or if you are a, an independent voter who tends to, to vote more toward the Democratic side of the ticket, you know, obviously this impacts you much more so than it might uh, for Republican voters, even though if you're a Republican voter um, that lives in a rural area, uh, you too have been impacted by these laws that have restricted hours of access to the polls or have restricted the number of polling uh, locations you know, per county. You know, we've talked about this any number of times on this show uh, where you know, in states like Texas and Mississippi and Utah where they have reduced the number of polling places down to one per county in some cases, particularly in Texas, where it can take you three hours or four hours to get to a polling place in order to cast your ballot. Well, the bottom line of the day, folks, is this. If you want your voice heard, you need to do whatever it takes to overcome whatever obstacles are put in place in order for you to get to that poll and to cast your ballot. If you look at the history of you know, the, the uh the, the Jim Crow South and the poll taxes and questions on the Constitution and guessing the number of jelly beans in a jar and you know, naming all of the U.S. presidents, all of these, these tests that were given uh, in, in the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s were designed to eliminate people from casting their vote uh, you know, just based on, you know, their demographic. And a lot of the laws that are being proposed in, you know, the states, and there are hundreds of them, and, and like I said, we've talked about this, you know, I, I, I don't know, a dozen times in, in the last year alone. Um, a, a lot of these current, you know, voter security, as they say, to improve the security and the integrity of the vote are really thinly disguised disenfranchisement tactics. As we've also said on this show many times, through all of the, the trial and tribulation of the 2020 election as an example, as the most recent example, there has been no proven factual evidence of significant voter fraud or uh, voting irregularities that could have or would have overturned 
the result of the 2020 election. Now, that's not to say that there weren't some people who, you know, voted in the wrong district or, you know, tried to, you know, do something shady. Yeah. So, you know, even if even if we had a thousand of those or 10,000 of those, that would not have changed the outcome of an election where a hundred and, you know, 160 million people voted that there's no evidence there have been no facts brought forward and to you know those of you who support the idea that the vote was stolen I, I, I say to you and I urge you don't just bring the words bring your facts bring your proof show the receipts you know what based on what do you make that claim not just you know the talking points that you get from right-wing media but what are the hard facts you know they 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 need to bring forward the actual doctored ballots you know all of these hard irrefutable evidence that not thousands but millions of votes were tainted and therefore maybe there is a rationale for you know changing the election and the final point I'll say on this before we go to break is uh, I just want to address this notion that's being put forward by you know some you know supporters of the the prior president, the 45th president, that uh, sometime in August that he is going to be reinstated as president of the United States. Now you should be aware and when someone is giving you this argument here are a couple of facts that you can you can answer back number one there is no law there is nothing written in the Constitution of the United States there is no law that has been written that says a president who was defeated in an election can be reinstated to the office of the presidency um, you know, it, it just doesn't exist. There's no law. There's no precedent. There's no practical method that has been given for how such an event would take place. So, you know, the, the idea that Donald Trump is going to be reinstated in August by, you know, by some means or method just is a fallacy. It is not true. All right. So uh, let's take our break here. Uh, we'll be right back after this short pause. You're listening to Fire It Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break.
We're back with Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve, and we're going to jump right into what I really wanted to cover uh, on today's show is uh, some updates on the COVID-19 situation. I know I cover the, the number of cases, the number of deaths, the number of vaccinations at the outset of every show. And if you've been following the numbers, uh, whether it's from my show or from other news sources, you would have noted that the overall rate of infection and the death rate uh, through the um, middle part of the first half of, of this year uh, actually uh, had, had trailed down. Uh, this was in part uh, due to the level of vaccination that has occurred in this country, along with you know, an, an overall adoption uh, by a, a growing number of people of the safety mandates that have been given to us from the medical and scientific communities. In recent weeks, uh, you know, the last uh, four, four to six weeks, however, we've seen an increase of the number of COVID cases um, that, that has occurred. And, and a lot of this is being driven by the, what's called the Delta variant, this latest uh, hybrid COVID uh, virus that has been spreading around through the country. And in, in looking at this, I, I found a few interesting things which I wanna talk about in this segment of the show. But first, let me give you a little bit of the statistics. Uh, it comes from an article that was uh, reported by Reuters. Um, this was on July 8th. And it cites that COVID-19 cases are up around 11% over the previous week, almost entirely among people who have not been vaccinated. Uh, the highly infectious Delta variant becomes the dominant strain or is becoming the dominant strain uh, in the country. Around 93% of COVID-19 cases in recent days have occurred in counties with vaccination rates of less than 40%. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Rochelle Walensky told a media briefing. Preliminary data from in recent months suggests 99.5% of COVID-19 deaths have occurred in unvaccinated people, she added. And that point's gonna become important as we go through this. Uh, simply put, in areas of low vaccination coverage, cases and hospitalizations are up. Uh, and the news has been talking about uh, this, particularly in the state of Missouri and, and some other states where uh, hospital occupancies for COVID-related illnesses have actually been spiking upward over the last few weeks. The CDC, going back to the article, the CDC earlier this week said the Delta variant of COVID-19 has become the dominant strain in the United States. The variant, which is highly contagious, has also become dominant in other countries around the world. Cases of COVID-19 are surging in counties representing 9 million people, uh, according to what Walensky reported. Low vaccination rates in these counties coupled with high case rates and lax mitigation policies that do not protect those who are unvaccinated from disease will certainly and sadly lead to more unnecessary suffering, she said. So, you know, what, what we are seeing 
is you know exactly what she said uh, in in areas of the country where the vaccination rates are low uh, the spread of the Delta 19 variant of COVID-19 uh, is running uh, wild you know is increasing the number of cases overall uh, there have been some maps published uh, by the CDC and by other entities that have shown the hotspots around the country uh, where the Delta 19 variant is um, is prevalent and is uh, on a rampage. There are some other information that came out, and this is kind of what I really wanted to get into with this. Um, there was some discussions that were held, you know, and. You know, I, I should caveat this by saying, you know, this show is not a medical show, but I want to talk about how COVID-19 uh, is being impacted and having an impact on the political situation here in this country. So w one of the things that uh, has been brought out, uh, and this was reported uh, am among other sources, by CNN editor-at-large Chris Saliza uh, on July 10th. And he showed uh, two maps. One of the maps was an electoral college map from the 2020 election, which showed the states that were won by um, Donald Trump and the states that were won by Joe Biden. The second map was or is a map of the uh, infection rates of COVID-19 uh, that have occurred in the past few months. And one of the interesting things that pops out of the map is that uh, the two areas are roughly the same. So, you know, the, the article that was posted in CNN talks about uh, how the States and counties that went for Joe Biden have higher overall vaccination rates uh, than states that went for Trump. And I put forward some interesting statistics, which I want to go through a little bit. So, you know, as the article says, so, for example, Biden won 66 percent of the vote in Vermont in 2020. That same number, 66 percent of Vermonters are now fully vaccinated against COVID-19. In Minnesota, Biden won with 52% of the vote. And yep, you guessed it, 52% of the population has been fully vaccinated. In New Mexico, Biden took 54% of the vote in 2020, and 55% of New Mexicans are vaccinated against coronavirus. And it also points out that the flip side is true. In Idaho, Trump won 64% of the vote. Just 36% of the state is fully vaccinated. Trump won 65% in Oklahoma. Less than 4 in 10, or 39% of residents in Oklahoma are fully vaccinated. And it just continues on and on. If you, you go look at the map, uh, if you uh, go to CNN.com and search for uh, two maps that explain how partisanship has poisoned our fight against COVID-19, or search for articles by Chris Saliza, C-I-L-L-I-Z-Z-A. Uh, you'll see the article and you'll see the maps, which are interactive, so you can actually uh, go between the two and look at the comparisons for yourself. 
So that that's part one of the statement. One of the things that you know this data is showing us is that democratic states or states that went democratic in the last election have a much much higher percentage of vaccination than states that went Republican. And you know it 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 lines up with some other uh, political bent on this and there was an article um, that came from Fox News um, that talked about the you know calling out Mitch McConnell um, because of um, saying he's perplexed about why GOP voters refuse vaccines so this article which also is a short one um, talks about the politicization of coronavirus vaccines in America has created a correlation between vaccine rates on whether or not a state voted for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And it cites that Republicans and white evangelicals have been among the groups most likely to resist getting vaccinated. Where Republicans are getting their information on vaccines is also impacting public perception of getting vaccinated. A recent 538 survey, for instance, found that Republicans who got their news from OANN or Newsmax were generally more extreme in their beliefs around QAnon and their refusal to get vaccinated than those who get their news from Fox News. Meanwhile, 538 continued, Fox News Republicans were often more in line with Republicans who got their news from other mainstream outlets. Despite right-wing media questioning the safety of the vaccines, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell voiced his confusion about vaccine hesitancy. I'm perplexed by the reluctance of some to get vaccinated. Totally perplexed, and that's a quote from McConnell, uh, he said in, in a report by CNN's Anna Cabrera. So, and this has been a discussion that I've heard voiced in, in several different um, venues and several different media outlets where the discussion has, you know, been around why there is such a wide disparity among uh, Democrats and Republicans in terms of the percentage of the population that is vaccinated. This appears to uh, be uh, the new thing that we're going to be tracking and trending as we talk about uh, coronavirus COVID-19 going forward. The voanews.com website had an article um, that I found over the weekend that talked about this specifically where it says um, that unvaccinated Americans whiter, more Republican than vaccinated. And they have some graphs in here that I want to just kind of highlight on. And you can go to the website and you'll see the article. It's listed in their, um, their pick list of topics. And it's definitely under COVID-19 pandemic. So they went and did a survey or they reported on a survey that surveyed um, a group on whether they are a wait and see or a definitely not. And um, along racial lines, the wait and see 
those that identified as black were 18%, Hispanic were 22%, and 53% of those who identified as white uh, had a wait and see uh, approach to the uh, vaccine. Uh, among political parties, 34% of Democratic respondents and 45% of Republican respondents uh, also indicated that they were a wait and see. And this poll is conducted by the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, which is a, a well-known and reputable um, uh, foundation. Um, they also surveyed for definitely not going to get the vaccine. And again, uh, under race or ethnicity, 7% of blacks, 12% of Hispanics, and 69% of whites said they would definitely not get the vaccine. And among political parties, 18% of Democrats and 58% of Republicans, which, as I, as I said a few minutes ago, uh, correlates with what the, the data on the maps shows in terms of comparison of the infection rate and the Electoral College map. Uh, there's a second chart here uh, that tracks the, um, the progress of the vaccine uh, under the categories of already gotten, as soon as possible, wait and see, only if required, and definitely not. Now, I won't go through all the numbers, but it tracks back through December of 2020. And what we've seen is uh, the already gotten category went from 6% in January to 65% in, whoops, in uh, June. The as soon as possible group went from 34% in December when the vaccine was first rolling out down to 3% in June of 2021. The wait and see uh, was at 39% in December of 2020 and has tailed down to 10% uh, here in June of this year. Uh, the only if required has stayed pretty consistent. It was 9% in December last year, and it's kind of hung around seven, six or seven percent straight through to June. And the definitely not percentage has also stayed fairly consistent. It was 15 percent in December. Uh, it's 14 percent now, and it's been averaging 13 percent uh, in all the months in between. So what we're what we're seeing is you know, the numbers are telling us that you know, there is definitely uh, a, a political uh, uh, slant to this, B, that there is a racial or eth ethnicity slant to uh, the, whether or not people are going to get the vaccine. And, you know, in that case, the, those identifying as white uh, outnumbered all others uh, almost uh, five to one. And the parties are split 58 and 18 with 40% uh, more Republicans saying they are definitely not going to get the vaccine. And, you know, I, I think it, it is easy to, you know, lay that off or not take it seriously. 
but I think we really must take it seriously. Again, if we go back to the maps that show the hotspots and areas of highest infection rates, it is where people are not getting vaccinated. Now, you know, that says that our, our political leaders need to be doing a better job, uh, both Democrats and Republicans, of convincing their constituents of the importance of getting the vaccine. I mean, it, it is, you know, clearly something that is going to impact uh, a large segment of the country. Uh, millions of people, you know, are in these groups that they're talking about and potentially could see, you know, a, a spike in infection rates and a spike in hospitalizations and death rates as well. And of course, you know, the fear is that this is going to push us back to where we were at the start of the year with lockdowns and restrictions and, you know, mask wearing requirements and the arguments that went around with that, both political and social. Um, you know, we, we could see where, you know, we got a taste of freedom and then, you know, because of the spread of the pandemic and in particular this Delta variant, which is, as I said, much more infectious than the uh, coronavirus we've been dealing with for uh, over a year now, um, we could see a large rise in you know, the number of cases and the number of people dying and the number of people infecting other people. Something to keep in mind, and I, I don't say this as a discouragement, but I say it as part of you know, bringing the truth. Being vaccinated does not prevent you from getting COVID-19. What it does is it reduces the impact of COVID-19 on the human body. So your symptoms are less. Your likelihood of being hospitalized goes way down. Uh, the likelihood of dying goes way down. And a lot of that with the vaccine rates that we saw here uh, in, in, you know, from January until today in this country is a lot of the reason why, you know, even accounting for the recent increases due to the Delta variant that we're still below the numbers we saw in the peak times we had, you know, through, you know, December, January, February, March, etc. Um, the, the vaccination program uh, is effective. The vaccines are proving to be effective at preventing the transmission of the disease. And, you know, therefore, it is, it is well worth uh, people going out and getting vaccinated uh, to protect themselves and their families, you know, and their, their communities. Uh, the other thing it's likely that we'll see if the present situation continues is something that came out of uh, reports this week on the Southern Baptist Convention that was held um, in, you know, on June 16th, and this was in Tennessee. And what they're saying is that, you know, they're already seeing a small cluster of coronavirus infections linked to the June meeting of the SBC uh, and this is in court, according to the uh, newspaper, The Tennessean. Uh, what they're saying is, um, you know, the, the 
of the 18,000 people who attended the two-day annual meeting, uh, they've already seen uh, 10 infections uh, had been found, but the cluster is almost certainly to get larger. Something to keep in mind here, 10 infections may not sound like a lot, but remember back to how this virus propagates. One person can get uh, you know, three people, four people, five people infected. We've been talking about this over the course of this pandemic since last year. So those 10 people can become uh, as many as 50 or more who get infected. Those 50 people can then, you know, multiply, you know, that by five and you get uh, 250. That 250 goes to, you know, more than a thousand and so forth and so on. So these small clusters, these gatherings that we see happening, that's how we, we had the spread of the pandemic initially. One person would infect three. Those three people would each infect three more. Those three additional people and so forth. So, you know, we, we run the risk of backsliding back to where we were, you know, sometime late last year where we were battling this disease. We had lockdowns. We had restrictions. We had mask wearing, you know, and, and all of that. Um, and it, it just really makes an even larger case for why we need to make sure that our elected leaders, our social leaders, our religious leaders, you know, our influencers are out there spreading the word that, you know, the vaccination is a necessary thing if we want to break the cycle of transmission of this, this illness in our country. Um, you know, it, it is clear that the vaccines are effective. It is clear that the, the Delta variant is uh, affected by the vaccine. Um, and, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, and I, I say this, not, I'm not a doctor, but I just report what I read. Keep in mind that the flu vaccines that we get every year and have been getting for, you know, 50, 60 years are only about 35 to 45% effective. The COVID-19 vaccine is, you know, from 88 to 95% effective on COVID-19. It is, you know, 75 to 85% effective on the Delta variant. So, you know, we're talking about something that is highly effective, uh, is doing what it is intended to do. And what we, what we hear with people who are hyping the minutely small percentage of people who get, you know, some side effects. And I, I don't wish, you know, side effects or sickness or illness on anyone. But with 350 uh, million doses of vaccine uh, issued uh, and, you know, uh, a couple of tens of thousands of people have a reaction to it, that is a, a minutely small number. And, you know, it, it, it really is kind of the name of the game with vaccines. You know, 50 to 60,000 people die of the flu every year. And the, the, the health centers in this country issue 180 or 190 million flu vaccines every year. 
So, you know, we need to, you know, take the information. As I always say, you need to check your sources, get information from as many sources as possible, dig deeper, dig wider, find out the facts, draw your own conclusions. Um, you know, personally, I recommend the vaccine. I, I've had it and, you know, I've had no ill effects from it. And the large number of people in my circle that I know have been vaccinated have had no ill effects from it. So, you know, that's just, you know, the, the call to action is if you aren't vaccinated, you really should go out and get vaccinated. Uh, it, it's for your good. It's for your family's good. It's for your community's good. And it's for the country's good. Uh, we, we could face a fall back into where we were at the start of the year, the end of last year, with you know businesses shut down, workers laid off again. Just as we're starting to come back, we can backslide back into the hole. So it's it's on all of us to do our part to help uh, you know end this pandemic in our country, keep our families and our communities safe. Uh, and return back to you know what what normal looked like for America you know two years ago. All right, that's going to wrap up our show for this week. As always, you know, please stay safe. Please, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, please do so. Uh, it is a benefit to all concerned. Uh, wear your mask when you need to. Wash your hands. Practice all of those things as well when you need to. Um, and you know, hopefully we'll all see this through so everybody take care thank you for listening if you have any comments or questions uh, about the show please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and uh, we're going to uh, look to see your emails and address them and uh, we'll take care of it so until then and you know as always thank you all for listening i greatly appreciate it everybody stay safe have a great week, and I look forward to talking to you again in seven days. Wherever you stand, calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation we can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.